Hi, I'm James Rocky, and this week on The Lunch, we're talking about some of the best films of 2013 with Justin Chang, the chief film critic for Variety and Variety.com. That's this week on The Lunch, as brought to you by Snoot Entertainment. about film and, yes, food, where every week I dine with a creator or a critic in the world of film, and then we record this podcast talking about movies and a little bit about where we ate. This week, it's very much my pleasure to have back as my guest, Mr. Justin Chang. Mr. Chang is a member of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and is also the chief critic for Variety, where he covers the international world of film with aplomb, grace, and intelligence. Good afternoon, Justin. Thank you very kindly for joining us. Thank you for having me. Not as much aplomb, grace, and intelligence as your introduction, but Please. I try. You'll also notice that I closed my <laughs> eyes during that, so I wouldn't m- mess it up. So it no may have distractions. Looked, did it look like I was having a stroke? Or? I'm used to it. Okay, wow. <laughs> it used to me not looking like I had a stroke. That's terrific. Uh, as we record this, of course, the end of a year is approaching fast, and yes. the end of a year for film nerds is approaching even faster. The New York Film Critics Circle <clears throat> announced their awards earlier this week as mm-hmm. did the National Board of Review. On Sunday, you and I will be gathering as part of LAFCA to go over that body's uh, end-of-year awards and casting our votes. But even as we get near the mm-hmm. end of 2013, I want to ask you not the negative questions, not what's the worst, what's awful, but the positive one, which is, if I'm somebody who loves movies, what are the three movies this year I need to really think about seriously in terms of the best of the year. And I figured you'd be a great human being to ask that because you see so much stuff and you see it so uh, insightfully. And your first answer was uh, a really telling one, one of the most uh, and best-reviewed films of the year. Why don't you go on, Jeff? Yes, uh, that would be Before Midnight. And it's kind of remarkable. I'm, I'm so pleased to be talking about this film still at year's end because this is one of the first movies I saw in 2013. Um, I saw it at uh, the Sundance Film Festival, and there are great films at Sundance, but to be able to have seen that and loved that film, and, and then 12 months later, to look back across this past year, which has been a fantastic year for movies, but I think Before Midnight still sits comfortably up there at the top. It's either my number one or my number two favorite film this year, and I think the reason I would encourage people to not forget about this film or to not overlook it is because I do think it still has that modesty, that kind of just that laid-back but completely masterful touch that Richard Linklater brings to most of his movies, I would say, particularly this one, which is, I think, just immediately you know, a candidate for one of the best third films in a trilogy of all time, one of the best trilogies of all time. I just loved this film just in every... And, I, and it, it's, it's so gratifying because I did not think that this was a film that needed to exist. I was perfectly fine with just before sunrise and before sunset, the two films that, of course, preceded this one. And so it's just such a... I just, no, I, 
it, it completely disarmed me and just the, the places that this film goes from being just this kind of mellow Greek Greece set comedy and then it, it takes a swerve into what I think it gets into Ingmar Bergman scenes from a marriage territory. I just think it's remarkable. The performances by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy are so good, and they carry the weight of just history of these two characters that we've come to know and love over a 20-year period. And I think it's the kind of performances that are really easy to overlook, just how good and how seamless they are, how beautifully harmonized they are together, and um, very much not performances that I expect to get much traction this season, but I think they're among the best this year. There's the old caveat that the Academy frequently confuses best with most. Correct. And the other thing, um, I was reading the latest issue of Lucky Peach, the uh, dining and restaurant quarterly from the folks at McSweeney's. Have you read it? No. Jolly good stuff. Yeah. And the one thing that keeps coming up is when somebody wants to know if you can cook, they ask you to make an omelet. Uh Seemingly simple, but requiring finesse, requiring delicacy. Absolutely. And I think that I think of Before Midnight as an omelet movie. It looks simple until you were to actually try and make it. We live in an age when people confuse direction with velocity and scope and pixels. Mm -hmm. And the idea of somebody who can get, capture, in every sense of the word, two people having a conversation that well is pretty amazing. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, at first, you know, you you need to break eggs to make an omelet. And a lot of eggs, I think, get broken in this one. And um, it's just such a... It, this movie kind of hurts, you know. It's a really, it's a, it's an emotional experience, and even more so than the than the first two. Just to really quickly to your point, I think the two things this year, the two most maybe images that have stayed with me the longest are gravity, the sight mm-hmm. of just Sandra Bullock just floating in space in this endless digital expanse, and Before Midnight, two people just arguing in a room. I think between those two images, I kind of felt that's like two poles of just cinematic achievement this year that I um, that just kind of and everything else is in between somewhere because it's two people having a really interesting argument a really interesting argument the way it's shot and mm-hmm. the, the claustrophobia where it's just this two, you know it's just uh, two, you could not imagine two more different uh, scenes movies and yet um, those are those are up there for me Al Franken once said this great line in his political life about how when a lot of conservatives say I love America it's like when a kid <laughs> talks about their mom and right. when liberals say they love America, it's in a tone of a 40-year, you know, 20-year-long aggrieved marriage where you say things like, right. I love you, but did you close the goddamn mm-hmm. garage? Mm-hmm. And Before Midnight is clearly a I love you, but did you close the goddamn garage Absolutely. movie, which is way more interesting than montages and hand-holding mm-hmm. and what have you. It's very much, you know, it's, it's about the difficulty of a relationship, and that's a subject that I think will never, ever quite... Uh, Grow old, and I think it actually goes right very nicely into my next one. If you don't mind my segueing, you know. I wasn't um, going yes. to segue briefly to say that <laughs> sure. there's one thing that is weird about Before Midnight sure. for me, or rather, it makes it difficult to see it <clears> in its own, in the context of no context. It's that you know the film itself gives the illusion of Aristotelian unity. You know, mm-hmm. it's a day driving around and talking. But there's all that history which we've already seen that it's trailing in the wake of, mm-hmm. and again. Not to be, not to play hardball, but play hardball. It is Fine. before midnight as good if you've never seen before sunrise or before. I sunset. could not possibly answer that only insofar as I, since I saw the other two first and right. saw them. I think in the um, actually I don't know when I saw exactly. I can't remember when I saw before sunrise. I actually think I saw it pretty close to before sunset, so I didn't see it on that first initial release. But um, at the same time, I mean, not to use other people's opinions, but I've heard from people who went into the movie blind, and it's not something that I would recommend. I would say if you want to watch Before Midnight, make the effort to see the other two first. 
But I do know people who saw it blind, and perhaps they didn't love it to the degree that that I do, or that someone who you know who has experienced that history would. But I think they could see just. To me, emotional truth is emotional truth. I don't know. I guess I can't put it better than that. And so I think you get the sense of history, and I think it in, it, it inclines you to you know it, it 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 inspires you to want to seek out the the other two if you haven't seen them yet. It's the whole thing of when we find lost medieval art that was part of a triptych. It's like, well, what do the other two panels say? Oh, who can know? Just enjoy it for what it is. We have all three panels here, and I think that's. Really interesting. Again, when you said this might be the best trilogy of all time, normally that phrase is so debased and denatured, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like if more filmmakers had the ambition to make dramatic trilogies, right. it might have some fair competition. But like, yeah, I'll say that you know, Before Midnight is a better trilogy than say the Smurfs films or <laughs> Alvin and the Chipmunks or. Or even The Godfather, dare we? Oh, I didn't, did I say that? No, I'm not sure. The Godfather is not a trilogy. Exactly. It's, it's, it's not. It's two it's delightful not, no. movies with an inflamed appendix. Exactly. But you're saying that flowed very nicely into your yes. next one, the idea of, uh, you know. Yes, my, the second film that I would encourage people not to miss um, is Blue is the Warmest Color. Uh, not that, and I don't know if people have missed this movie. I mean, it did win the Best Foreign Language Film Award from the uh, New York Film Critics Circle. There's been buzz and controversy about it since its con debut. It won the Palme d'Or. And the reason I would want to speak up for it is because I do think so much of that controversy has clouded truly what this movie is and what it's even about. It's interesting to me, and I think that the arguments that critics have made about the extremely explicit lesbian sex scenes in the film and whether they are shot from the horndog perspective of the director Abdelatif Kishish uh, it, that's how that's problematic you know those scenes can be problematic I, I would even grant that you know I think though that they occupy they're important but they occupy such a small portion of this extremely sweeping and expansive three hour emotional journey and I do say emotional because the emphasis on it is is, is emotional Right. That's the reason the sex has any weight at all, and the reason why it's not pornography is because you are invested in these characters, and so they are, you know, it, you know, people see, people can read object, objectification into this. I did not. I saw someone trying, I think, sexuality and, you know, depicted with this level of kind of intimacy and explicitness is always going to be a hot potato, always going to be difficult, but the intent there is to me again to capture a term I used with uh, with before midnight is emotional truth. I think it's great to have films that depict sex as something grown ups do. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see um, Evan Rachel Wood's brief tirade against the MPA via the Miracle Bond Mo machine of Twitter? I did indeed. Saying that uh, for those of you out there, Charlie Countryman. That's for right. those of you yeah. out there, uh, Charlie Countryman had a couple mm-hmm. of sex scenes snipped to avoid an R or an NC seventeen rating. Correct. But the thing that gave the MPA the willies was a scene of uh, Ms. Wood receiving pleasure from a male character mm-hmm. in a uh, method which recently exactly. was illegal in several states, and that had to be cut. Now, I think of the MPAA as a crepuscular fraud. It's not even a dinosaur going into the tar pit. Yeah. It's a guy in a dinosaur suit going <laughs> into the tar pit. And the other thing is that there's nothing like a ratings board designed to keep Americans safe from things they should either already know about or should be talking about like grown-ups. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, thanks to the MPA, no American filmmaker can approach sex unless it's as this filthy, dirty thing where people get shot afterwards or 
you know, the great dichotomy of the L-shaped sheet, where after a man and woman make love, he's naked from a waist up, and she's exactly. got the sheet up to her neck. Exactly. I, I think blue is the warmest color is a little bit under-directed, um, and oh, I think... Wow. Well, Makes not under-directed, but under-edited, which is part of it. It's a movie... Sure. It could use some Coco Chanelling. Take, so, take one thing <laughs> off before you leave the house. And also, Manola Dargis did some great writing about Blue is the Warmest she Color did, as, yes. like, exploitative or maybe a little bit too surfacey. And what I'll say is that while I was watching it, I kept on thinking, I know this Ms. Archidopoulos. Exarchopoulos? Exarchopoulos. I think. The lead, Adele, mm-hmm. is a very talented young actress, yes. and she's certainly pleasant enough to look at. But I found myself thinking that if the Dardenne brothers had made this film, sure. we'd be seeing more of the nape of her neck than her <laughs> face. And if it were the True. Dardenne yeah. from behind shot, you'd be part right. of her day and pulled along by it, as opposed to at a remove looking at her purter purter face and her nice, nice hair. You know, it's funny because I think that a lot of, you know, the Dardenne brothers that kind of the nape cam, as, 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 if you will, actually is not a device that they overuse. I think it, it was most radical and extreme in The Sun, their 2003 film. Since then, their films have actually gotten more and more, I don't want to say conventional, but classically kind of shot in a way. It's still handheld, still, but they've actually opened up their, their style a bit. A and lot, I, yeah, a lot. lot. But so, I identify yeah. with them, much as, yeah. you know, when I see somebody walking sure. right towards a lens and not stopping... Right a la Cape Fear. I think of that as a Scorsese shot, even though sure, David Russell did, yeah. just did one in American Hustle. No, no, and there's absolutely no, you're, there's no overstating the influence that the Dardens have had on cinema, especially European art house cinema, and you know any film that kind of aspires to this sort of realist or neo-realist, whatever you want to call it, kind of aesthetic. Certainly that influence is there, and I think it's very right to bring it up. Um, I really love Kishish as a director, and he, I, you know, his style, is his methods are you know, can, to say the least, can be off-putting, certainly to his, the, the cast that he works with. Uh, the, the controversy stems not just from the sex scenes, but from Adele and Leah Seydoux, her co-star, you know, having just felt abused during this whole process. I love Kashish's films, um, recently in particular, The Secret of the Grain, and even Black Venus is a very controversial film that didn't even get a proper release anywhere because it was just so, I mean, that... You know, it's a movie about kind of racial degradation and everything. And I mean, that movie makes 12 Years a Slave look like the uh, sound of music. Um, so, in a, in a sense, I, I see... So I see Blue is the Warmest Color not just as a great film in its own right, but is kind of existing on a continuum with his previous films in that he's a confrontational director. He p- thrusts the camera into his characters' faces. I remember the first time I saw Secret of the Grain, I was really turned off by it. I was like, I, these characters were just eating, shoving their their faces with couscous, and it's just like, couscous is a big part of the movie. And half an hour in, I wanted out of this movie, and then it just, it worked its spell. I got completely immersed, and that, that to me is still his masterpiece, in my opinion. Um, and so when I saw Blue is the Warmest Color, and I know a lot of people complain, because why are there so many lingering shots of her eating pasta and then eating oysters and what is admittedly kind of a laughable sort of metaphor for, you know... The, we've all seen like, Tom Jones. Yeah. <laughs> we have, we've all seen Tom Jones, you know, sublimated appetites and all of that. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's pretty... It's, it's on the nose, no question. But, Freud 101. But, yeah. I, but I, I, I love that he is interested in showing you some sense of how people interact, how they live their lives, how they eat, how they talk... And how they have sex, because that's another form of communication. And a very important one. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, 
it's weird to look at films that are very, very well made mm -hmm. where you still are presumptuous enough to think, well, the director thinks his movie is way longer than it should be. I was actually, we'll talk about this later, but Active Killing at Toronto, when I wrote it up, I just said flat out, it seems, you know, considering that I am not currently being pursued by death squads, you know, that I don't have paramilitary organizations with extraordinary power in the streets, it does seem rude for me to go, come on, right. Whitey Vaughn Whiterson would like it if you hurried it up, folks. Exactly, yeah. But it is a film that I think could use that. I think the, Toronto, I think well, the new no, cut's shorter. It's interesting because, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but right. with the act of killing, but since you brought it up, because um, I saw that film at Toronto last year as well, and, you know, I am not as on board with that documentary as most of our critical brethren are, and, um, and I just, uh, that movie seemed to me... So it's not just that it's a difficult or an unpleasant experience because I think it's, it rightly should be, but I also felt that the amount of insight we were being given was a little bit out of proportion to the amount of time that was being spent to kind of just... I don't know. I'm, I'm almost asking you to kind of convince me too because that's one that I haven't seen. I know it's been recut since then. Yes. And I, so someone you know, took, uh, took some advice somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm actually... I, I wouldn't say I'm looking forward to seeing it again, but I feel no. I should. It still, it still you know? feels like it has a little bit too yeah. much air in it, uh. but less than. Yeah. With that said, we are getting ahead of yes, ourselves. Uh, so Blue is the Warmest Color is another film you feel yes. where people should. And that's what a lot of these recommendations are. Get through the, the discussion and the cant and the shouting. And you know, these are reasons to pursue a film worth having your own opinion on. And your third film would, of course, be... The Grandmaster, the uh, Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai's first film since My Blueberry Nights, which was not a very good film, and it killed me because I, I revered Wong Kar Wai so much, and um, I think he's got his mojo back very clearly with this film, which is his most commercial film to date, and, um, and it's really interesting because in the way that it's very different from his previous work, and yet you watch it and you feel that no one else could have directed this. Um, it's a biopic of Ip Man, the martial arts master, who famously who's had several uh, several he's had a whole recently. franchise, uh, you know, of films uh, that is that are that are being made about him, and um, he is famously uh, Bruce Lee's master. He's played here by Tony Leung, um, who is uh, Mr. Wong's go-to, absolutely, yeah. and for my money, just one of the most charismatic and best actors working today. Um, this is a film, and it's interesting. It's an interesting choice because. Um, this film was released in the U.S. by the Weinstein Company, who released it in a version that I believe is at least 10 minutes shorter and completely recut and restructured. And so I'm still actually looking forward to seeing the full unedited version, which I've heard is... Friends I trust have told me it's close to a masterpiece. Uh, the, the version that I... The, the, the bastardized, boulderized version that we got in theaters is still pretty damn good, I must say. Just really... Be just staggeringly beautiful action sequences shot in this hyperkinetic, you know, to the point of abstraction almost. And yet it's, you know, it's not the kind of clean classical action that you maybe, you know, are, are used to or would prefer, but it's just, it, it's, it's, it's just a, so poetic and so beautiful. And the way that it's a bio, you know, I don't like too many biopics. This one I like because, you know, because they... It finds the visual poetry and the kineticism of what he does. Precisely, which is usually what he does anyways. Yeah. But also it just, you know, it, it doesn't go from this, and then A to B to C, you know, kind of a structure. It doesn't try to, it's, it's more, and it's less even a biopic about Ip Man. It's more like, if anything, it's a biopic about just 
the spirit of kung fu, if I could put it that way. And it's it's uh, and there's so much. The more you know about kung fu, the probably the more you'll get out of this film because there is something a little ap- academic about it too. And I don't know much because, but um, but it is uh, it's remarkable just how he sort of has distilled these different fighting styles and given you know it, it's 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 just a it's a really remarkable and very unique kind of action film. We were talking about biopics, and just as a side note, when we talk about unoverlooked films. Um, <clears throat> I don't like the whole walk the line thing. No. I like, uh, you know, he was a boy and then he was a man, which was satirized so perfectly in Walk Hard. But were you pro or con Michael Mann's Ali? You know? You can pass. You can not recall. I'm going to pass on that, actually. And partly because my memory of it is just... I I have to... That, for me, was a movie of a year it came out. Specifically because what it did was it didn't say, here's the story of Muhammad Ali. It was, here's the story of X number of years in American culture Mm -hmm. told through the perspective of the life and times of Mr. Muhammad Ali. Right. And all the objections I heard to Ali were crazy. Like, oh, we've already seen the rumble in the jungle and, you know... In that terrific documentary, why do we need to see it again? And the answer is, well, you don't see it again. You see no. a different perspective on it. Completely. Or people going, but Ali was so happy. It's like, the guy who plays Ronald McDonald smiles all the time. I bet you he's, sad, <laughs> he's mad when he gets home. The inability to separate the public persona and the, per, and the person, for lack of a better word. But again, right. when a biopic either shoots around with some kind of social political intent or focuses on a big transition. Like Quentin Tarantino said right, lately, don't give me all of Ellis's life. Give me the day before he decided to walk into a recording studio and record that record for his mom. Mm-hmm. You know, that is the kind of stuff no, I precisely. love. Precisely. Well, well, you know, and as I think Michael Mann acknowledges with that film and as, as someone like, you know, even whatever, how Bennett Miller did Capote or something, acknowledging that a film cannot encompass the entirety of a person's life. And... The films that try or pretend to are the ones that end up looking kind of ridiculous, I think. And I do think, I like how a lot of, you know, I hesitate to even call them biopics, maybe biographically, biographical dramas or whatnot, acknowledge that. And they usually focus, like the way Capote does, you know, on sort of a relevant period of time. In, right. In, in, in the most dramatic, you know, it tells, it tells a focused story. Um, Rather than seeking to, you know, try to give you... Dramatize the Wikipedia brief. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah lately. Uh, so the Grandmaster by Wong Kar Wai, we're never going to see the original cut of that, are we? Not unless we order it. Not, some... in, the, not in the theater. Um, it is, you know, you can get it on DVD. You can get it on Blu-ray, I think, from, um, from Asia. But uh, who knows? I mean, I would have... Maybe it's some, you know, if, if they do some kind of retrospective or something, they have some kind of special... I would love that if they, you know, if... One night only, they ship a DCP or a print. Yeah. 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 The Weinstein Company are kind of ticking me off this year in that, one, all of their Oscar contenders look like their own wax dioramas celebrating their victory. Uh, Mandela looks tedious. Yeah. Philomena. I've seen the Magdalene Sisters. That's a great film. Great film. I'm glad to hear you say that. Did you see Philomena then? I haven't seen Philomena yet just because I don't need to be updated on the idea that the Catholic Church is awful. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because... I, that movie is so, on one level, it is extremely well done. And it's well done in a way that just annoyed me. It was so slick. Glib. So slickly crafted and glib. And to me, actually, I don't, I don't know, I may be alone on this, but 
quite condescending, actually, toward its central character, I think. I mean, I think it tries to have it both ways. I think it tries to move, you know, sympathize with her and move, but it's so, it's a very snarky movie. It's got a lot of comedy to it. Um, you know, it's a crowd pleaser. I just found it so, so kind of just, there was no air in that movie. These bad things happened, but now this happy thing will come out of it. Yeah. Uh, also, they're buying movies from Wong Kar Wai and Bong Joon-ho yeah. and then cutting them. Absolutely. Which Snowpiercer, now that's the one I've heard so much. I mean, people love Bong's full... Bong Joon-ho. Yes. Yeah. Bong Bong I misspoke, but no, yeah. Did you say... No, I think you... I think, you I think I said Mr. Bong. Mook. Oh, yeah. Park Jung. Uh, Korean directors, so, you know, there's, uh, they're, they're I always, the I always mess up the patronymic. You know, the patronymic yeah. comes first. But uh, yeah. Mr. Ho... Mr. Bong, actually. Mr. Bong, Mr. Bong that's right. Yes, exactly, Bong. the patronymic comes, comes, comes first. So first. Mr. Bong's uh, film, people say it's terrific and does not need to be cut one minute. But, and, yes, you know, that's the whole thing. It's yes, like absolutely. It's yeah. like those people you see going to get married and they say, and I won't, I'll do a dumb male voice for this, if I can just get her to change her hair, her trousers, <laughs> her chestels, and a few other things, she'll be perfect. Like, you're getting... Married. If you're releasing a film, maybe you release it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this is certainly nothing new. I mean, I think for Pat, you know, especially when it comes to uh, foreign language films, I think especially when it comes to Asian films, and especially even when it comes to a particular, you know, certain Asian martial arts films. So, The Grandmaster is an interesting example. Uh, Zhang Yimou's Hero is another example from more than ten years ago. Get to the fight like, faster. When are you, and it's just, it's very. I have very mixed feelings about this because I do think we have reasons to be grateful that you know Harvey Weinstein is out there and providing a platform for these for some of the world's best filmmakers, and yet there is something yes, uh, it's um, incredibly compromised and somewhat abusive about the way uh, these films are are presented. Finally, if they're presented at all to the public. Now, have you seen August Dosage County yet? I have. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> Enjoys another. Time. I, I I know you didn't, uh, but uh, but I would say that I did for the most part. I thought it was I just, fine. It's just, better than I had thought it had any right to be. I just felt like I was being fired out of a cannon into the shouting mouths <laughs> of a Mount Rushmore made of '80s acting icons. <laughs> it just felt improbably tedious and shouty yeah. and awful. Well, you know, it's interesting to me because I I do like the play. I, I very much like the play, the the Tracy Let's Play that it's based on, um, and. This is, I think, as good a film adaptation if we must have if we must have one. And yet, at the same time, it's just like you do wonder why we need one at all. Well, I mean, also, to, you know, um, in the theater, you have to play to the back row. Right, uh, John exactly. Wells should have said to his cast, "You know, gang, indoor voices." Mm -hmm. It just felt like being right. shouted at. And yes, I did walk out when the camera was shooting from apparently inside Miss Streep's nose. <laughs> <laughs> even someone, I think Meryl Streep is pretty good in this, but it's. I would have liked to see. You disagree? I would have liked to see a different actress. I mean, I've talked to some of my colleagues, and Judy Davis would have been such an interesting choice for this. I mean, if she would, you know, if, you know, it's someone, someone like that who would be, you know, who could. Because I just think, you know, and it, it's interesting. I think people are seeing this too, not to bring awards into it. I don't hear a lot of people talking about Meryl Streep in August Osage County, and I think, you know, overexposure may have something to do with that. And in in a in a vehicle that, even though I think it's a pretty decent film, is clearly intended to be an awards a magnet. big prestige white elephant. 
I, I always say that if the Academy wanted to change everything, which of course they don't because right. they're the Academy, they would say that, you know, uh, no more than three best picture contenders from a quarter per year. <laughs> well, I think that would serve the public very well because then we'd get uh, good movies. The two, thing, the two things the Academy could do is say that half the best picture contenders have to come mm -hmm. January, June. And the other thing they could do is say it's not one week in L.A. or New York. It's exactly. playing one week in top 20 markets slash these film festivals. Mm -hmm. Just because the whole idea of like having a discussion about... A, uh, Let's celebrate the year in film by narrowing it down to 10 movies that came out between November and the New no. Year. It's not especially clever, but... Well, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, this, the interesting thing I'll say, too, about the New York Film Critics Circle announcement, <clears throat> having given it to an American Hustle, a movie that, to date, has not opened yet. Yes. And uh, last year, I believe it was, they gave it to Zero Dark Thirty, which, which also had not opened yet. It's interesting, and I, don't question, I think those are two both fine choices. I don't question them, but I do sort of... It's interesting when that starts to happen, you know, with any regularity, when something like a Before Midnight or even a Gravity or something that's come out and the pub that has been put before the public, you know, it just, I, I, I never, you know, would never want to be playing, you know, in terms of my choices, but to feel obligated right. to pick a December release. And that's Oscar has myopia. Yeah. And also, American Hustle. Perfectly good and fine film. I'm not sure it benefits from being hurled into that discussion. I was surprised. I, I like the movie very much. Yeah. It was, I, and it was uh, apparently, you know, it was a death match between that and Twelve Years a Slave, which is, you know, perhaps the more expected choice. And um, but uh, you know, it was a kind of a cool left field outcome, I think. And uh, and I think it will. It, it does raise the film's profile in a way that hopefully, you know, more people will see it. And I wish the New York Film Critics Circle the best of luck next year in announcing their top ten films, uh, their best film of an eleven month year. <laughs> I always that feels yeah. fatuous to me. I don't even like the fact we're doing it on Sunday the eighth. But I, I know I, no, it's true, and I think um, yeah. Well, I don't want to I don't want to bash him too much. I mean, you know, it's uh, but it's uh, I feel the the need to be first and to get out. That's why I I really quite respect you know the National Society of Film Critics, of which um, just they choose to wait until January. You know, which at least uh, you know the year is over. Yeah. Then, you know, you know the, the yeah. Village Voice pass and jot pull of records used right. to come out in February, for mm -hmm. God's sakes. Mm -hmm. But why is it, is it weird that our entire desire for media information revolves around first when most of us would accept that behavior as pretty lousy from a lover? <laughs> <clears throat> we can talk about the New York Film Critics Circle's yes, premature celebration later. Premature. So, The Grandmaster, Blue is the Warmest Color, and Before Midnight are the three films you yes. feel like people shouldn't escape from. Very briefly, I'm just going to share with you mine. Please. One being Shane Carew's Upstream Color. I have really one or two films left to see this year. I saw Upstream Color in January. And it's one of the certain things like when I saw City of God in January, and I thought, either I'm crazy or nothing's really going to get too close to this this year. And nothing has for me with Upstream Color. Mm -hmm. um, can I tell you a brief anecdote about an Please. illuminatory 36-hour period and a conversation that I couldn't understand? Sure. I had the best uh, 36 hours of movie going in my life one year at Cannes. Mm. Because in terms of stuff in the competition or stuff throughout the festival, it was seeing within 36 hours, No Country for Old Men. 2007, I knew it. Yep. yep. Fantastic. Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Mm -hmm. Four months, three weeks, two days, and Persepolis capped off by a screening of the Battle of Algiers with the directors in mm -hmm. attendance. And also the best film at Cannes that year, which not many people have seen, Secret Sunshine. 
Oh, yes. 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 My personal favorite. Um, but that great year festival. at Cannes, I did those four fil five films in 36 hours. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, the morning after Diagonal and a Butterfly, and you know how you recognize people. Like, right. there's Italian McOwl eyebrows. There's German McSlunchy back. There's Frenchy McGreat hair. And one French journalist is talking to another. I give these people nicknames. I love it. There's a Sleepy McGee. What was mine? Uh, come on. You I know. You I know, Soul Patch Jones. But this woman was saying, uh, Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Chapinadre Papillon? She made this gesture. She had her hand up like this. And then she brought it down and went, Cinema. <laughs> and I like that gesture of a yeah. drawing together. Like, and in terms I wish of, your listeners could see you do that. I may post yeah. a GIF. Please. But yes. <laughs> and the whole thing of, you know, movies aren't longer television. They're not right. books that move. They're not wide comic books. They're a unique art form. And in terms of bringing together all the disciplines and essences of that art form to create a cinematic film, right now for me it's kind of upstream color. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, that's a film that just aspires to be, you know, I mean, the term tone poem is really overused, and I don't know that I even use it for this one. But no, because it, when you watch a, it, it has uh, a narrative. If you're watching it clearly, it does have a narrative, a clear... which becomes even clearer when I saw it the second time. Yeah. Um, but the way that it's made, the editing, I mean, we have an editing award, and I, I, I you know, I would think this is, you know, it's just so much of the, lang the, the language of the film is in the editing, and just the... The, it's just this kind of sight and sound collage where you feel like you're having this kind of out-of-body experience while you're watching it. I would also say that in terms of double bills, you know, you like the accidental double bills. Oh. Her and Upstream Color would be mm -hmm. a great double bill. In terms of science fiction-y love stories, one about not being able to truly know and be present with the other person, and one about not being anything not being able to do anything but knowing and being present with the other person. Mm -hmm. And I think that both of them do a really good job of yes. exploding and exploring their metaphors. Um, and it's funny in places, too. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, the second would be The Spectacular Now from James mm -hmm. Ponsold, written by, yes. uh, we, uh, by uh, Newbuyer and Weber. Uh, this is great, great teen movie stuff that does not condescend, that does not stoop, that is way better than, say, the perks of being a wallflower, which I call the perks of having an on-the-nose soundtrack. Uh, and Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley in such incredible... It's so good. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, BFCA has a thing for best young performance, yeah. and I'd have to check for both of them, but Teller and Woodley are great, and it's the other great yeah. kid performance of the year, Anata April. Yes, in what amazing new. Oh. oh gosh, you know, I can't go back and change, but that's a movie that people shouldn't miss. Also, that's I mean, a really it's movie. It's, it's on the Netflix yeah. streaming right now. It's a great adaptation of an 18th century novel, Absolutely. thoroughly modernized, utterly touching. Uh, so that's spectacular now. And my final one is in a world. Mm -hmm. A lot of show business comedies tend to gnaw the hand that feeds them. This one, I think, draws blood legitimately. Mm -hmm. A lot of rom-coms are about people holding hands while a pop song plays. This one's about what people are talking about on their way to falling in love. A lot of movies have to end with a very convenient big finish that leaves everyone, all the characters, quote-unquote, happy. I know this one doesn't, and also it's very smart about how in show business your victories are often actual failures, but you still have to raise the flag high. Yeah. And also it's an incredibly aware and subtly, for lack of a better word, feminist work that I really, really like and really, really respect. Absolutely. And finally, uh, somebody in my life is the daughter of a long-term uh, 
uh, props, crafts, and settings person, who uh, their father does, did that for everyone from Altman to Blake Edwards. Their grandfather built the animal puppets for the film Them and the uh, casino set in uh, Robin and the Seven Hoods. And watching that film through the eyes of someone else who has a creative parent in show business is, again, very, very interesting. It sounds like you had um, a very good Sundance. All three of your picks are from that from I had January. An, I had an amazing yeah. Sundance. Yeah, yeah. and great... also, um, those are all good movies that are going to be... Terrific. You know, that are I just like, like Coke cans crushed beneath Leviathan's like August Osage County and Mandela mm-hmm. Long, Long and Real Long, Time Walk to Freedom. Yes, Walk to Freedom. Uh, really quickly, before we wrap sure. up, uh, we uh, just quickly are going to talk about two films that we each thought got hurled under the bus a little bit summarily mm-hmm. from this year. They're not necessarily top 10 contenders, they're not award contenders, sure. but you just want to say to people, don't be so harsh. This did a lot of interesting things. And your pick was very interesting because it was... White House Down. Um, the Roland it's, Emmerich, it's, uh, uh, Channing Tatum, Jamie you know, Foxx joint. Joint is right. I saw, you know, I really, I have to, I, you know, I confess, I, as I think a lot of critics would, and I would say this movie actually did not get that terrible reviews. It actually got some who appreciated it for very much for what it was. Um, and I think a lot of critics have that affection for Roland Emmerich. I certainly do. I had a blast at 2012, too literal blast and and figurative but this film white house down you know tanked horribly for sony and um and really but when i saw it and i think i saw it after the fact after the kind of dismal box office totals had come in and it's just it really does feel like a throwback to a, an earlier dumber more innocent era of summer movie going it's and, fleet it's zippy. It gives the president zippy. good one-liners. And it's played as comedy, at least in part. I mean, yeah. it's also played for, you know, it's played to every possible f- f- you know, faction in the room, but it's uh, drama and, you know, and, and, and thriller and comedy in some ways. And just, you know, the way the way the, the things come together at the end, the script, you know, the, the careful planting of the seed in, in Act 1 that comes to fruition in Act 3 is just, you know... It's it's completely idiotic, and yet it's kind of a lost art. And so it was it was disappointing to me that the film, um, you know, did not find the audience that it you know that it that I would say it deserved. Um, it sounds weird saying this because you know we had the trailer for the Amazing Spider-Man two drop yes, today, did. which just feels like one of those things where you're brought to the buffet when all you want is like a steak and a salad. Yeah. It just feels so big. I think the fact we're lo- that we're sort of reaching this consensus that all summer movies have to look like that. No human protagonists. Everybody has to be superhuman. No more people in peril or a city in peril. It's got to be the world, and not politically, but like crackling energy. Right. It just, I'm tired of people just banging on that end of a piano the loudest. You know? Yeah, I do know. I know. At the same time, ironically, the movie I was going to say that got uh, unfairly hurled buswords this summer was Man of Steel. Uh, Doesn't a bus get hurled in that movie? Yes, exactly. Uh, And again, for a couple of reasons. One, there are some egregious howlers in that film. The phallic spaceships of Krypton. The question of who exactly Clark is putting on a cape to emulate at the beginning of a film. But A, a lot less than the Avengers. And the two things that I like about it are specific. One is that my dream Superman film has always looked like a Venn diagram of Norman Rockwell and James Cameron. And the whole thing of, even in the trailer, the scene of Superman being hurled into a bank vault and then reluctantly peeling himself out of the hymn-shaped dent in it to go back into the fray, 
I liked that. Yeah. And the other thing is, a lot of people were saying, oh, my Superman doesn't let civilians die, my Superman doesn't mm -hmm. kill people, my Superman would have saved all that degree of Metropolis. A, he's fictional. And B, I think that Mr. Goyer and Mr. Snyder did some interesting things to break a canon, to make a film. And finally, yeah, there's a lot of destruction of a final fight, but logically there would be. And if this is going to be the, the dominant power dream of our day, I think it's worthwhile and of purpose to show the nightmare. And it's not, uh, you know, anything like, I don't think it's anything like drafting on 9-11. This is drafting on stuff Alan Moore did in comics back in 1987. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the whole idea of like that level of urban destruction, mm -hmm. while it goes on, is better for the Avengers. Okay, everybody, let's yeah, go shawarma. We're done. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I don't want to pick on Man of Steel too much either. I mean, I don't really like that movie that much, but I do. I think there's less of a difference. Between this and the Avengers, than some would think. I mean, I you know, I mean, it's a question of tone, you know, certainly. Yeah. But there's something kind of just. My objection maybe is there's something a little just kind of anonymous and kind of just so impersonal about the violence. I mean, it's I don't object to violence in itself. I certainly do not object to filmmakers, you know, uh, deliberately confronting the sort of psychic trauma ongoing of 9/11, for example. And, I, and actually, and I'll, I'll, I'll give Zack Snyder credit. I think he was doing that here. I think because for me, there's, you know, when that scene when they are sort of being pulled from the rubble and sort of standing atop this mm. you know, kind of little little mound and just looking and their faces are covered in ash. I mean, they were courting that conversation, I think. And I, I, I my colleague Peter DeBruge and I wrote a little bit about this earlier this year about that the kind of, you know, disaster porn aspect of this and other movies like that, you know, and, and that being problematic. But I do wish filmmakers would... And I, and I think Christopher Nolan, who produced this film, has done that again and again the only thing worse Dark than, Knight movies. The only thing worse than disaster porn is the fake doomgasm, i.e. a film that does not accept the consequences of what it has. Like, I mean, yeah. Ben Affleck in Clear yeah. Impre in uh, oh, Some of All Fears. Right. A nuclear weapon goes off in Baltimore, and a month and a week later, everyone's having picnics in the sunshine in Washington. You know, it would help if your movie acted like what happened and it True actually enough. happened. Yeah. And also, again, um, you know, I feel like at a certain point, if people are going to be mad about the imagery and feelings of 9-11 being used uh, inappropriately by our filmmakers, I wish they would get that upset about the images and nature of 9-11 being abused as, as grotesquely as it was by the Bush administration for purposes of an utterly illegal war against a nation that had no involvement in 9-11 and, as it turns out, no WMDs. I don't disagree with you. Diplomatic as ever, Justin. No. Justin and I dined at the counter on Wilshire across the way from a variety of offices. Uh, I was just there recently with the director of Dear Mr. Watterson. Uh, oh, yes. yes. But uh, oh. it's a, it's a go-to for you? It is. Um, I like the counter. It's also just really close and convenient. It's the whole thing. So. It's a chain, but it's a good chain. It's and good also, chain. as you were saying about White House Down, nothing wrong with a well-made burger. Not at all. And with, they do that well. With that said, you can find The Counter throughout Los Angeles. You can find Justin's writing online at Variety.com. And you, we can find you on Twitter at... Justin C. Chang. You do have a middle initial, which I always I like. Justin, thank you very kindly for joining us for this edition of The Lunch. Thank you for having me, James. It's a pleasure as always. I'm your regular host, James Rocky. Join us for The Lunch podcast next week. But until then, go see the movies, talk about it with your friends. 
maybe over a meal, it's a good thing.
Yeah.